Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bob Keezer. This is the Son of Man Urantia Project. Today's episode is Chapter 49, The Kingdom of Heaven. Jesus taught his last sermon at Pella on March 11th. This lesson was notable in that it was a complete discussion of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was aware that his apostles and disciples were confused about the meaning of the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Although the word heaven should have been enough to separate the idea of any connection to earthly kingdoms, it was not. The idea of an earthly king was too deeply entrenched in Jewish culture for it to be replaced in one generation. So at first, Jesus did not openly oppose this long-cherished idea. This afternoon, Jesus hoped to clarify his teachings about the kingdom of heaven. He discussed the topic from every angle and worked to make clear the many different ways that the term had been used. In this accounting of Jesus's lesson, we will expand on what he said by adding numerous statements that Jesus made in earlier talks, and by including some of the things that he said only to his apostles during their evening discussion later this day. We will also talk about the later results of the kingdom idea as it relates to the subsequent Christian church. Concepts of the Kingdom of Heaven In the Hebrew Scriptures, there were two ideas of the Kingdom of Heaven, as a present reality and as a future hope that comes to fulfillness when the Messiah appears. This is what John the Baptist taught. From the very first, Jesus and the Apostles taught the people both of these ideas. There were two other factors about the kingdom that should be borne in mind. The later Jewish idea of a global supernatural kingdom resulting from miraculous events and Persian beliefs of the kingdom being the result of the triumph of good over evil at the end of the world. Just before Jesus came to earth, the Jews had combined and confused all of these ideas of the kingdom into beliefs about the end of the world, that time when Jews would rule during the new age of God's supreme rule on earth, and when all of the people would worship Yahweh. When Jesus chose to use this idea of the kingdom of heaven, he took the best of both the Jewish and Persian religions. The kingdom of heaven as it has been known throughout the Christian era, embraced four distinct groups of ideas, those of the Jews, those of the Persians, Jesus' idea of personal experience, the kingdom of heaven inside of you, and the many confused ideas that Christianity has tried to impress upon the world. During his many public teachings, Jesus gave the people various concepts about the kingdom, but with his apostles, his teaching was always that the kingdom of heaven was a person's personal experience 
knowing the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of humanity. With them, his final word was always, the kingdom is within you. The meaning of the term kingdom of heaven has been confused for centuries because of three things. The confusion that resulted from the idea of the kingdom as it was recast by Jesus and the apostles through its progressive phases. Second, the confusion that came about from Christianity moving from a Jewish to a Gentile base. And third, the confusion inherent in Christianity becoming a religion that was organized around Jesus the man and becoming more of a religion about him than about his teachings. Jesus' idea of the kingdom. Jesus was clear in stating that the kingdom of heaven must be centered on the fact of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of humanity. By accepting this teaching, humanity would be liberated from its age-long bondage to animal fear and at the same time, enrich human life with the following gifts of new life and spiritual liberty. 1. New courage and increased spiritual power. Because the gospel sets man free and lets him dare to hope for eternal life. 2. New confidence and true hope for all people, even the poor. 3. A new standard of moral values, a new ethical yardstick that can be used to measure human conduct. It gives us the ideal for a new order of human society. 4. Understanding the superiority of the spiritual over the material, glorifying spiritual realities, and uplifting superhuman ideals. 5. The new gospel focuses on spiritual progression being the true goal of living. Humanity received a new level of morality and divine dignity. 6. The understanding that eternal realities are the result or the reward of honorable efforts on earth. Man's mortal life on earth takes on new meaning when it is recognized as having a noble destiny. 7. The new gospel confirms that human salvation is knowing the divine purpose in the destiny of the salvaged sons of God. These teachings cover the expanded idea of the kingdom that Jesus taught. These great concepts were hardly embraced in the simple and confused kingdom teachings of John the Baptist. The apostles were unable to grasp the real meaning of Jesus' words about the kingdom. The later distortion of Jesus' teachings, as they are recorded in the New Testament, is because the people who wrote the Gospels believed that Jesus was only going to be gone from the earth for a short while, that he would soon return to establish the kingdom and power and glory, the same beliefs they had before he was killed. But Jesus did not connect the establishment of the kingdom 
with his return to this world. That centuries have passed with no sign of the coming of the new age is no way out of harmony with Jesus' teachings. Jesus' attempt in this sermon was to translate the idea of the kingdom of heaven into the ideal of doing God's will. For a long time, Jesus had taught his apostles to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, he did what he could to get them to put away the term kingdom of God in favor of its more practical twin, the will of God. But he did not have any luck. Jesus wanted to substitute the idea of king, kingdom, and subjects for the idea of heavenly father, heavenly family, and liberated sons of God doing joyful and voluntary service for humanity in the beautiful and intelligent worship of God the Father. Up to this time, the apostles had dual understanding of the kingdom. First, as a personal experience, then in the hearts of true believers. And second, as a question of racial or world phenomena, that the kingdom was in the future, something to anticipate. While they saw the coming of the kingdom in the hearts of men as a gradual process, like the leaven in the dough or germination of a mustard seed, they believed that the coming of the kingdom in the racial or world sense would be both sudden and spectacular. Jesus never tired of telling them that the kingdom of heaven was their personal experience of realizing the higher qualities of spiritual living that these realities of the spirit experience are progressively transformed into new and higher levels of divine certainty and eternal grandeur. On this afternoon, Jesus taught a distinctly new idea of the dual nature of the kingdom by portraying the following two phases. The first phase, the kingdom of God in this world, the supreme desire to do the will of God, the unselfish love of man that yields improved moral conduct. The second phase. The kingdom of God in heaven, the goal of mortal believers, the place where the love of God is perfected and where the will of God is more divinely done. Jesus taught that by faith, the believer enters the kingdom now. In his various talks, he taught that two things are essential to enter the kingdom. First, faith and sincerity. To come to the kingdom as a little child, to receive sonship as a gift, to submit to the doing of the Father's will without questioning, and in full trust and confidence of the Father's wisdom, to come into the kingdom free from prejudice and preconceived ideas, to be open-minded and teachable like an unspoiled child. Second, hunger for the truth, the thirst for righteousness, a change of mind, acquiring the desire to do God's 
excuse me, acquiring the desire to find God and to be like God. Jesus taught that sin is not the child of a defective human nature, but rather the child of a knowing mind dominated by an unsubmissive will. Regarding sin, Jesus taught that God has forgiven and that we make such forgiveness available to us by us forgiving others. When you forgive your brother, you create the capacity in your own soul to receive the reality of God's forgiveness for your own sins. By the time John the ba- by the time the apostle John began to write the story of Jesus's life and teachings, the early Christians had experienced so much trouble with the idea of the kingdom of God and it had brought them so much persecution that they had pretty much stopped using the term. John talks a lot about the eternal life. Jesus often talked about it as a kingdom of life. He also frequently frequently referred to the kingdom of God in you. He once spoke of such an experience as being family fellowship with God the Father. Jesus tried to substitute many terms for the kingdom, but always without success. Among others that he used were the Father's fold, the Father's will, the Father's service, the friends of God, the children of God, the family of God, the fellowship of believers, the brotherhood of man, the fellowship of the faithful, and the liberated sons of God. But he could not escape the use of the kingdom idea. It was not until more than 50 years later, after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman armies, that this idea of the kingdom began to change into the cult of eternal life as its social and institutional sides were taken over by the rapidly expanding and crystallizing Christian church. In relation to righteousness, Jesus was always trying to impress on his apostles and disciples that they must acquire by faith a righteousness In other words, a level of decency that would exceed the mindless works of some of the scribes and and that would exceed the mindless works that some of the scribes and Pharisees paraded around and boasted about to the world. Jesus taught that faith, in other words, a simple childlike belief in God the Father is the key to the door of the kingdom. He also taught that, having entered the door, there are progressive steps of righteousness that every believing child must ascend in order to grow up to the full stature of being a robust son of God. It is through thinking about how we receive God's forgiveness that the way to righteousness in the kingdom is revealed. Faith is the price you pay for entrance and to the family of God. But forgiveness is the act of God that accepts your faith as the price of admission. And receiving the forgiveness of God by a kingdom believer involves a definite and actual experience and consists in the following four steps. 
the kingdom steps of inner righteousness. First, God's forgiveness is available to people to the same extent that they forgive others. Second, a person will not truly forgive others unless he loves them as he loves himself. Third, to love your neighbor as yourself is the highest ethic. Fourth, moral conduct, true righteousness, then becomes the natural result of such love. So it is evident that the true inner religion of the kingdom unfailingly and increasingly tends to show itself in practical ways of social service. Jesus taught a living religion that encouraged its believers to engage in loving service. But Jesus did not put ethics in the place of religion. He taught religion as the cause and ethics as the result. The virtue of any act must be measured by the motive. Hence, the highest forms of good are unconscious. Jesus was never concerned with morals or ethics as such. He was wholly concerned with that inward and spiritual fellowship with God the Father that so directly shows itself as outward loving service for humanity. He taught that the religion of the kingdom is a genuine personal experience that no man can contain in himself. That knowing we are members of the family of believers inevitably leads to practicing the rules of family conduct, the service of one's brothers and sisters, in the effort to enhance and enlarge the brotherhood. The religion of the kingdom is personal, individual, the fruits, the results, are familial, social. Jesus never failed to praise the sacredness or holiness of the individual as compared with the community. But he also recognized that man develops his character by unselfish service, that he unfolds his moral nature in loving relationships with his friends. By teaching that the kingdom is inside of each person, by uplifting the individual, Jesus struck the death blow to the old society by ushering in a new time of true social righteousness. This world has little known this new order of society because it has refused to practice the principles of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And when this kingdom of spiritual superiority does come down to the earth, it will not be shown merely in better social and material conditions, but rather enriched spiritual values that characterize the approaching age of improved human relations and advancing spiritual attainments. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Jesus never gave a precise definition of the kingdom. Instead, he discussed various aspects of the brotherhood in the hearts of men. In the course of this Saturday afternoon sermon, Jesus noted no less than five phases or epochs of the kingdom, and they were. First, 
the personal experience, the spiritual life of an individual believer's fellowship with God the Father. Second, the enlarging brotherhood of believers in the gospel, the social aspects of enhanced morals resulting from the reign of God's Spirit in the hearts of individual believers. Third, the supermortal brotherhood of indivisible or invisible spiritual beings that reign on earth and in heaven, the superhuman kingdom of God. Fourth, the hope of God's will being more perfectly fulfilled, progression toward the dawn of a new social order with improved spiritual living, the next age of man. Fifth, the kingdom in its fullness, the future spiritual age of life and light on earth. Because of all of this, we must always examine Jesus' teaching to determine which of these five phases of the kingdom to which he is referring when he uses the term. By gradually changing man's will and thus affecting human decisions, Michael and his associates are likewise, gradually but certainly, changing the entire course of human evolution, social and otherwise. Jesus took this occasion to emphasize the following five cardinal features of the gospel of the kingdom. First, the preeminence of the individual. Second, the will as a determining factor in man's experience. Third, spiritual fellowship with God the Father. Fourth, the supreme satisfaction of loving service to man. Fifth, the transcendency of the spiritual over the material in human personality. This world has never seriously nor sincerely tried these dynamic ideals and divine ideals, dynamic ideas and divine ideals of Jesus' doctrine of the kingdom of heaven. But you should not become discouraged by the apparently slow progress of the kingdom idea on Urantia. Remember that the order of progressive evolution is subject to sudden and unexpected periodical changes in both the material and spiritual worlds. The gift of Jesus as an incarnated son was just that type of strange and unexpected event in the spiritual life of the world. Neither make the fatal mistake of when looking for the age of the kingdom to show itself, you fail to bring it into your own souls. Although Jesus referred to one phase of the kingdom coming in the future, and he did on numerous occasions, hint that such an event might seem like part of a world crisis. And though he promised on several occasions to return to Urantia sometime, it should be noted that he never linked these two ideas together. He promised a new revelation of the kingdom on earth at some future time, and he also promised to sometime come back to this world in person. But he did not say that these two events were one and the same. From all we know, these promises may or may not 
refer to the same event. Jesus' apostles and disciples, though, most certainly did link these two teachings together. When the kingdom failed to materialize as they had expected, recalling Jesus' teaching about a future kingdom and remembering his promise to come again, they jumped to the conclusion that these promises referred to the same identical event. And because of that, they lived in hope of his immediate second coming to establish the kingdom in its fullness with power and glory. And so have the following generations of believers lived on earth, entertaining the same inspiring but disappointing hope. Later Ideas of the Kingdom Having summarized Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of heaven, we are permitted to tell you about certain later ideas that became attached to the kingdom and to prophesize on how it may evolve in a coming age. Throughout the first centuries of the Christian propaganda, the idea of the kingdom of heaven was tremendously influenced by the then-spreading thoughts of Greek idealism the idea of the natural world being the shadow of the spiritual world. In other words, the temporal as the time shadow of the eternal. But the great step that marked moving Jesus' teachings from the Jews to the Gentiles was when the Messiah of the kingdom became the Redeemer of the church, a religious and social organization growing out of Paul and his successors' activities, and based on Jesus' teachings as they were added to by the ideas of Philo and the Persian doctrines of good and evil. The ideas and ideals of Jesus, embodied in the teaching of the gospel of the kingdom, nearly failed to be realized as his followers progressively distorted what he had said. Jesus' idea of the kingdom was modified by two great tendencies. First, the Jewish believers persisted in regarding him as the Messiah. They believed that Jesus would very soon actually return to establish the worldwide and more or less material kingdom. Second, the Gentile Christians began very early on to accept Paul's doctrines, which led increasingly to the general belief that Jesus was the Redeemer of the children of the church, the new and institutional successor of the earlier idea of the purely spiritual brotherhood of the kingdom. The church, as a social outgrowth of the kingdom, would have been wholly natural and even desirable. The evil of the church was not its existence, but rather that it almost completely replaced Jesus' concept of the kingdom. Paul's institutionalized church became a virtual substitute for the kingdom of heaven that Jesus had announced. But doubt not, this same kingdom of heaven that Jesus taught exists in the heart of the believer, will be announced yet to this Christian church, even to all other nations, races, and religions even to every individual. 
The kingdom of Jesus' teaching, the spiritual ideal of individual righteousness, and the idea of man's divine fellowship with God became gradually submerged into the mystic conception of Jesus as the Redeemer, Creator, and spiritual head of a socialized religious community. In this way, a formal church became the substitute for the individually spirit-led brotherhood of the kingdom. The church was an inevitable and useful social result of Jesus' life and teachings. The tragedy was that this social reaction to the teachings of the kingdom so fully replaced the spiritual concept of the real kingdom as Jesus taught and lived it. The kingdom to the Jews was the Israelite community. To the Gentiles, it became the Christian church. To Jesus, the kingdom was the sum of those individuals who had confessed their faith in the fatherhood of God, thereby declaring their wholehearted dedication to the will of God, thus becoming members of the spiritual brotherhood of humanity. Jesus fully realized that certain social results would appear in the world as a result of the spread of the gospel of the kingdom. But he intended that all such desirable social changes should appear as unconscious and inevitable outgrowths or natural fruits of this interpersonal experience of individual believers. This purely spiritual fellowship and communion with the divine spirit that indwells and activates all such believers. Jesus ex expected that a social organization, a church, would follow the progress of the true spiritual kingdom. And that is why he never opposed the apostles practicing John's rite of baptism. He taught that the truth-loving soul, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for God, is admitted by faith into the spiritual kingdom. At the same time, the apostles taught that such a believer is admitted into the social organization of disciples by the outward rite of baptism. When Jesus' immediate followers recognized their partial failure to realize his ideal of the kingdom in the hearts of men, led by the Spirit's domination and guidance of the individual believer, they tried to save his teaching from being wholly lost by substituting the gradual creation of a visible social organization, the Christian church, for Jesus' ideal of the kingdom. And when they had accomplished this substitution, in order to maintain consistency and to recognize the Master's teachings about the fact of the kingdom, they proceeded to set the actual arrival of the kingdom off until the future. The church, just as soon as it was well established, began to teach that the kingdom was in reality to appear at the culmination of the Christian age, at the second coming of Christ, instead of right then in the hearts of men. In this way, the kingdom of heaven became the concept of an age, the belief of a future visitation, and the ideal of the final redemption of the saints of the Most High. The early Christians, and all too many of the later ones, generally lost, this, lost sight of the father-son idea embodied in Jesus' teachings of the kingdom, 
while they substituted it with the well-organized social fellowship of the church. The church then became more of a social brotherhood and replaced Jesus' concept and ideal of a spiritual brotherhood. Jesus' ideal concept largely failed. But on the foundation of the Master's personal life and teachings, filled in with Greek and Persian concepts of eternal life and made better by Philo's doctrine of the temporal compared with the spiritual, Paul went forth to build one of the most progressive human societies that has ever existed on Urantia. The concept of Jesus is still alive in the advanced religions of the world. Paul's Christian church is a socialized and humanized shadow of what Jesus intended the kingdom of heaven to be and what it most certainly will yet become. Paul and those who came after him partly transferred the issues of eternal life from the individual to the church. Christ thus became the head of the church rather than the elder brother of each individual believer in the father's family of the kingdom. Paul and the others of his time shifted Jesus' relationship with the individual believer to the church as a group of believers. And by doing so, they destroyed Jesus' main idea of the divine kingdom being in the heart of the individual believer. And so, for centuries, the Christian church has worked under great embarrassment because it dared to claim those mysterious powers and privileges of the kingdom, powers and privileges that can only be exercised and experienced between Jesus and his spiritual brothers. And so it is apparent that membership in the church does not necessarily mean fellowship in the kingdom. One is spiritual, the other mainly social. Sooner or later, another and greater, John the Baptist, is due to show up proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning a return to the high spiritual concept of Jesus, who stated that the kingdom is the will of his heavenly Father dominating and transcending the heart of the believer, and doing all of this without in any way referring either to the visible church on earth or to the anticipated second coming of Christ. There must come a revival of Jesus' actual teachings in such a way that it undoes the earlier work of Jesus' followers, who created a socio-philosophical system of belief about the fact of Michael's stay on earth. In a short time, the teaching of this story about Jesus nearly replaced the preaching of Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. In this way, an historical-based religion replaced Jesus' teaching that blended man's highest moral and spiritual ideals with man's most inspiring hope for the future, eternal life. And that was the gospel of the kingdom. It was because of this fact that the gospel of Jesus was so multifaceted that within a few centuries, students studying his teachings broke into so many different sects. This deplorable breaking up of Christian believers results from failing to recognize in Jesus' teachings the divine oneness of his perfect life. But someday, 
Jesus' true believers will not be spiritually divided before the unbelievers. Always, we can have diversity of understanding and intellectual interpretation, even varying degrees of socialization. But a lack of spiritual brotherhood is both inexcusable and reprehensible. Mistake not, there is in Jesus' teachings an eternal nature that will not permit them to remain forever unfruitful in the hearts of thinking men. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus imagined it, has to a large extent failed on earth. For the time being, an outward church has taken its place. But you should understand that this church is only the larval stage of the frustrated spiritual kingdom. Though it will carry the kingdom through this material age and over into a more spiritual time when Jesus' teachings can enjoy a better chance to develop. In other words, the so-called Christian church has become the cocoon where Jesus' concept of the kingdom now rests. The kingdom of the divine brotherhood is still alive and it will eventually and most certainly break free from being hidden so long just as surely as the butterfly eventually emerges, the beautiful metamorphosis of its less attractive stages of development. Okay, everybody, that's it for chapter 49, The Kingdom of Heaven. In two days, we'll have up chapter 50, On the Way to Jerusalem. Defend liberty, protect those kids, serve man for the sake of God. Bobby Keezer, out here.